Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Faber podcast, featuring Steve Sem Sandberg, the author of the international bestseller, The Emperor of Lies. Steve was born in Oslo, and after a journalistic career spent mainly in Central and Eastern Europe, now lives in Vienna. Steve has achieved international acclaim for his detailed, vivid, and profoundly affecting portrait of the ghetto in the Polish city of Łódź in Emperor of Lies. Sebastian Barry called the book monumental. Carmen Khalil compared his achievement in bringing a whole society to life to Dickens. No less a historical novelist than Hilary Mantel said of it, fiction here is operating at its best, to close the gap between past and present, between them and us, not through sentiment, but through real understanding. I find it difficult to think of any book that has had such an immediate and profound impact on me. What made the Wuge ghetto different from the others set up by the Nazis? Well, it was presided over by a complex monster, Mordecai Chaim Rumkowski, who compelled his fellow Jews to work for the German war machine, in a terrible pact with the devil that would ultimately cost hundreds of thousands of lives. The Wuge ghetto became Rumkowski's private fiefdom, with its own police force, shops and schools, even its own currency and chronicles. As you'll hear, Steve Sam Sandberg has drawn on those chronicles in order to reimagine the ghetto, even today still haunted by ghosts, and shine light on the nature of evil manifested in one particularly dark time and place. When we met earlier this month at the Faber offices, I began by asking Steve about making the transition from being a journalist to writing novels. Is one tool. 
when you can use many other tools and those instruments and you know, but the fact is there is a backbone of reality in my book, and I, I tend to think about it as, as, as a backbone. I mean, it gives the general chronology, the, the basic events, but I really do quote from the Ghetto Chronicle. I, I mean, making a direct quote only two times in a book or close to 700 pages. So all the rest is, is, it's not made up entirely, but it's fiction. It's basically fiction. You follow 12 or 13 families going through all these events and, 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 and to the bitter end, so to speak. And, and, and these common people are not in any recorded documents. There's people that I've, I've um, imagined. How did you begin to approach this subject? Do you remember what your starting point was? Yes, I very much do. I, I used to live in Prague at that time, in the Czech Republic. And from Prague, many, many Jews were actually deported to which, for some strange reason, it's very, very far off. Actually, there were flight towns, but some total 5,000 Jews that left in 1941. And I was, at that time, working part-time journalism, part-time full-time writing, to put it that way. So, one thing I wanted to do was to follow in the cracks from Prague to Wood, some of the best the people I knew had been important. And some of them would maybe surprise British readers. Uh, two of them were the elder sisters of Franz Kafka. As you know, Franz Kafka, the writer, he, he died in the early 20s. But his sisters, older sisters, lived on and got their chief families. And all of them were deported to the capital, which I never encountered anywhere in the literature of Kafka the address of where they went. They just kind of disappeared into history like so many other people that Jews did. So I followed them in the tracks and I actually found out where they lived, which I thought was something of a journalistic feat at the time. But I was almost completely entranced by, 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 by the ghetto, the city of which himself. Itself, and I, what I hadn't imagined was that the ghetto area in itself would be so intact. It's basically today, to this day, still the same place as it was 65 years ago at that time. It's completely run down, shuttered, crooked buildings. And you could just go in and the stairways, and you could also walk into the rooms that were just the same way as it had been. During the war, and it was not even even windows, window frames, just a dark place of wood or some some textile to keep the rain out. And it was such a haunting place because I, I remember it was November. I was walking around in the streets, you know, when you, when you don't know where you are, and you you kind of drop down into a place, and the only thing I had was a map. And the only thing that marked the ghetto area, the former ghetto area from the, from the Polish city of Łódź, the other part of the city of Łódź, was, was a kind of chalk line on the pavement. And I lost the chalk line. I was, I mean, moving around so much, I, I lost the, 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 the sight of the, this chalk line. I didn't know where I was. Was I in, 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 inside the ghetto proper, or was I uh, being outside? And the place really haunted me. And for years to come, when I wrote the book, I tended to, wherever I was living, either in Prague or in Stockholm or Vienna, I, 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 I put myself back on the train and I went back there. And that was the, 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 the 
Lord just starts speaking his inspiration for me to actually be in the place. And that is something which other veterans which have been destroyed wouldn't have offered you. But I also wondered how much the figure of Rumkowski was an impetus throughout this book, how much that that was a decisive factor. Maybe you can say a little bit about, mm-hmm. about him. Uh, well, I, I knew of Rumkowski, of course, as anybody would uh, be, before I went to to to, to, to which. And uh, I was completely amazed that the, the, the single man to have this kind of responsibility put into his hands. I mean, he was really a master of life and death. But um, he had this you know, quarter of a million Jews in his hands. And he could do and did with them whatever he wanted. So, I mean, it, it was a man who... who but, but then again, this, this power was put into his hands by the Germans. You shouldn't forget that. I, I mean, it was the Germans who actually made him do it, do this. Uh, but, but, but since all his, his speeches had survived, I read them during my first day in, in which actually I was amazed the way he talked about his um, city, the, the ghetto as his, um, his nation state almost. Like. And he talked about uh, when he addressed the people, he said, you can go to my bank to change your, your money. You should go to my pharmacy. You should go to my shops. Like everything and everyone belonged to him. It soon became clear to me that this was not some sort of simple rhetoric, the way he addressed people, but he actually believed this. So when he says that you have to amputate the legs and the arms of the ghetto in order to save the Jewish people there, he was actually talking about his own limbs. And I got more and more intrigued by, 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 by the reason, how, how was he reasoning, and how, how, how was he actually able to cope with that situation, that he had to give away all his people to say who, in the end. In the end, there were only 788 people left of all these quarter meetings. And how did he reason? How did he think? Not sometimes when, when I was reading about him, researching, he came, came through as, the, as your common megalomaniac, as you would say. At other times, I think he was obsessed by some sort of purity of worship. He actually saw that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and this was the only feasible way to get there. But the one truth does not take out the other one. You can have these conflicting views and the conflicting viewpoints in the same person. And that's what makes him so fascinating. He was not only the chief collaborator of, of, of his town and this, this period, which he was, Definitely with the Nazis and what all, all, all the people he had to, to kill. But he was also one, one, one of them, the persons who actively had a strategy to survive. It failed, but it did have a strategy. And that's what makes the, the, the portrait of him, I think, so, so moving. Uh, at least for me, it was. You can not stay with a cold heart when, when you look at him or, or read about him. How far? Is his personality recoverable, do you think, from the historical record? And to what extent does a novelist's imagination, at what point does a novelist's imagination have to step in and really try to interpret what's there? It's an extremely interesting um, question, because uh, um, apart from the Ghetto Chronicle, on, on which my book is, is, is based, there exists also parallel to that, and not just to this day published, uh, something called the Ghetto Encyclopedia which was in fact an encyclopedia that, that the same authors that wrote the, the Ghetto Chronicle put together themselves 
because they knew that there were people, places, and things in the ghetto that, that would, were not actually comparable to anything else, and they made a list of those things. It was ways of expression, so the way the rations were dealt out, the way the, the police was organized in the ghetto, and such basic things. But it also was a list of the main personalities of the ghetto, the biographies, so to speak. And you have each and every one of the functionaries were there with these biographies where they were born and, and educated and their families and so on and so on. So there's one card missing in that heap, and that is Karl Trajmukowski himself. There's no card on him. It seems extremely strange to us, or at least to me when I when I browse through the things of PDF for the first time. He was the, the chief, the main, the boss of the ghetto. Rumkowski was the ghetto. He said, why wouldn't there be a card on him? And there are, of course, many, many reasons why maybe the card was extracted at some point. It was written. He did not please him. He took it, took it out or somebody else took it out. But it, but it kind of describes also my method in my book. I mean, I try to get as close as possible to facts as I possibly can. I mean, I'm one of the few persons who actually have held this encyclopedia. I will have a copy of it in my own hands. And I've read each and every word of it. But I did also notice that the, the card of Rumkowski was missing. So I kind of filled in my own card, if you can put it that way. And then, so going on from home, you talked about walking the streets of Woods and how comparatively unchanged they were. But how do you, as a novelist, go from from that experience to actually bringing to life the everyday lot of people who, who were in that ghetto in those terrible years? Yeah. Well, since, since there exists this, this, this huge uh, compilation, this, this chronicle that was, I mean, actually... Actually, what it is is a day by day account of what actually took place in the ghetto from the 20th of January 1941 up until the 30th of July 1944. That was actually the day before the, the last deportations began, and those who wrote the chronicle were actually put on the trains so they couldn't write anymore. So then you have 3,500 pages in which everything is listed. I mean, not only the main events, the deportations and, and, and everything, but also the, how do you deal with the coal distribution? How do you deal with the diseases? Uh, and who were actually queuing up for these and these things? There were three hens suddenly found running around in the ghetto. And it's a vivid description of all the people in the ghetto running, trying to catch these two hens. And nobody knew where they flew from, but they were over a fence in some way, and they happened to be in the ghetto. And you can see from this, this vivid description of all, all the ghetto being on its feet, trying to catch these three hands. I mean, it, it kind of gives a different perspective on things. And, and, and the ghetto chronicles in America, as such, it's, it's, it's like a total story of novel in, in, in a way. You, you, can, you, you are on each and every level, level of the ghetto society at the same time. So I kind of used that, and I used a lot of material from that, and, but, but it was also the ramp or the starting point for my own imagination. And I, it came the liberty to imagine these people as not as different from us as we would, would, we would believe. They had their ordinary lives, although the, 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 the 
because it were far from ordinary, but they had to live day by day and how we deal with that and how we did feel and so on. So the main characters of my novel is quite ordinary people trying to go about their daily lives. And the book is called from the viewpoint of an omniscient third person narrator. But it's not an impressive voice. And I wondered how you how you achieved that voice. Was it made it difficult to find the right the right pitch, the right tone for, for your narrative? I think you keep, you keep in mind two things. For the first, the first thing is that this is this is this is a collective novel. It's really a novel about many people. So I I, I, I made a decision not to to have a main character, as you can say. There are many main characters, and you can follow the tracks of each and every one of them. But there is not a single individual with whom you would tend to um, empathize more than any other models. And I think that that also gives very strict directives to, to the author. One thing that really kills in, in, in these circumstances is sentimentality. And sentimentality is that, that the, the author or the writer himself is trying to interpret the events for the reader. He's telling the reader what to feel and when to feel and how to feel. Which I think is just plainly wrong. And in this case, this Holocaust event, it's also morally wrong. Because you are the ones, the reader is the one who is presented with the actual events, and he is the one who is going to, 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 to take these events in and, and, and also judge them according to his own. I, I'm not in favor of the, the kind of, of, of writing where, where the writer himself takes the reader by the hand and, and uses an entire book to show him. Look at this, look at this, and this is aha, uh -huh, you beware of this, and so on. I, 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 I tend to look at my book as, as, as a recreation of a universe, a mental, social, political universe, extremely detailed. And the reader is, is let loose, so to speak, into that universe. And at some stage, he will discover the reader too, that there are all walls around him too. And, and, and the important thing is that. that what will he feel? What will he do when, when, when he gets this? And what's it like for you, Steve, dwelling in that universe? Because you must have lived in very close proximity to these events for some considerable time, both researching and then, and then recreating it in fiction. So, what kind of things are happening? It's different, it's difficult to say. Does it even change to you? <laughs> I, don't know. I, don't know. Uh, I think it, for me it was extremely vivid. Uh, As I told you, I, I mean, to go, to go back to the, to the city was, was, an, was an imperative to me. And, and to actually walk the streets, I just did just recently, although the book is finished. I sort of come out in many, many languages. I say, this, this, this is a place for me that, that's very, very close to me. And I think it, 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 it was always now I felt I had it in me in some way to write. But I wasn't sure during the entire working process that I would be able to, to actually do it. There were so many things that seemed to be, to me, um, unfeasible, like I'm not Jewish myself. How would it, it would be possible to put yourself into the mindset of somebody who's completely different routes and conditions and so on. But the only thing you, in the end you have to test is your imagination. 
did that and uh, also had the, the opportunity to, to, to use this astounding, fascinating document that the Chronicle is in itself. It's unique in the history of the Holocaust. And, and it was, a, when I started writing the book, it was uh, unpublished and many of it, many parts of it are still unpublished. I think there will be now a homepage with the book where we will be able to publish some parts of the encyclopedia for the first time. So, so it's it's uh, it's working ground in a way, and, and that I think kept me going. Um, but but uh, I feel also that it's a book that really really changed me in many ways, and I I, I think and I hope that it will have the same a little bit the same effect on the reader I will be having to. And do you think writing about the Holocaust presents the novelist with particular responsibilities? or responsibilities in a particularly acute form? Well, I've always seen my own work as a novelist as, as, as trying to get as close to the, to the core moral issues as, as possible. And, and that goes also for the case, for, in, in the case of Ronkowski. What really intrigues me, me is, of course, what, what is good, what is evil, the problems of good and evil. And, and you tend to think about good and evil as, as something that you, you can eat, you can choose. Like Barack Obama used to say, you're in for some hard choices. You, know, you, can either, you can either go for the good or you can either go for the, go with the bad, so to speak. But the fascinating thing is, in, in, in these kind of circumstances, there are no, no possibility to choose. I mean, evil is the lack of the possibility to choose. And when Kroski was put in a place and in a set of circumstances, the choice was taken from him. But he still had to make choices. He still had to do something. If he didn't, didn't act all the time, he would be destroyed. And, and, and this is kind of an extremely fascinating subject in its own right. Now it happened to be a Holocaust environment and, and so on. And that kind of puts a certain responsibility to you. But, but what interests me is not the particular time and place, but how do you feel when you have all this power? How does it change you? What are your nightmares when you wake up in a, a ghetto? You have said that you wanted to say, and you see that it's completely empty. So, of course, it puts a lot, a lot of responsibility on, on your shoulders, but I think you have to be true to facts and you have to be true to your imagination and, and what you feel like your inner compass as a writer. I think you, you, you should not go wrong. And did your understanding of Rumkowski change? Did it deepen as you as you wrote the book? Did you discover things in the process of writing that weren't apparent when you began? I think that the, the, my experience is that I, I thought he, he 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 would come clear, so to speak. When I was finished with the book, when the book was finished, I, uh, he, he would stand out and I would suddenly be able to grasp him. But but what happened was actually the, the opposite. The writing of him kind of kept putting a layer and a layer and a layer on him. And it grew to be more and more complicated. He was, uh, I, at least to my mind, he was not a very complicated person, I think. I mean, he was kind of extremely simplistic. He, he dealt with, 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 with basic things. People were always quantifiable in his mind. He dealt with people like a business with his, with, with, his, with his dry goods, so to speak. But then again, the way he, he delivered his speeches, his megalomania, his, his 
obsession with having this mission and the way he constructed this mission as a sort of protectorate of, for the Jews inside the Boris of, Jew, uh, of Europe and so on. I mean, he was the, the most compromised person in, in, in any Polish Jewish society at that time, but he refused to bend. And he didn't kind of, he, he didn't bend to anybody. So, so you kind of add up the one paradox on the other, and, and in the end it comes out as quite a complicated character, but extremely fascinating. Tell me still about the linguistic texture of the book, because you use words of German, of Polish, of Yiddish, and that's, that's a very characteristic part, you use songs and proverbs and little quotations, so tell me what you, what you wanted to achieve through, through those means. I think that an important thing for me when I wrote the book and also the feeling I want to convey to those who read book that they are actually in a world. It's a world that's different from ours. But it's world. And the, the most typical characteristic of this world is, is that it actually was a Babylon. Many of the Jews in Poland didn't even speak Polish. They spoke Yiddish. And that Yiddish was, was, was special East European dialect of it that was not fully understandable even to other Yiddish speakers. Then again, you had an aristocracy of Jews who say you were bilingual, who spoke Polish, and tended to do that. But then again, then there, there came a third wave of deputies from, from, from uh, Berlin, Vienna, Prague. They were all German-speaking. So they landed in the ghetto speaking the same words as, as a language as their oppressors. And they were always referred to as the Germans. Not the German Jews, but the Germans. In, in one, one of my characters in the book, Clara Schultz, who is a Czech Jew, she actually speaks German. And she brought along a small typewriter, not so small, but the type, because she thought it would, could be useful, come in handy, so to speak. But it, it, it was a completely impossible to use because the types were in a different language from, from, from the one that commonly used. And, and, and she suddenly found herself in the street together with people she would never have known who were talking a language she didn't understand and she didn't have anything in common with. The only common thing was that they were considered by the Nazis to be Jews and in that sense exterminated. So I wanted, you, you, you tend to not think about this. You think about the camps, the ghettos, as, as some sort of uh, homogenous societies, but they were not. The only thing that made them homogenous in that sense was that the Nazis wanted to exterminate them. And this is a way of giving them back their, their own voice. And see, okay, you have a multitude of society, you have the London here, in all its complexity. Okay, so, what is, so how do you... So maybe that will change your way of looking at things. I know that you, you translate yourself, and I wonder what it was like to see yourself going to another language, in, in this case, English. Mm. I mean, I think the translation is a very accomplished piece of work. I've wondered what, what it feels like to you to, to see your, your work in another language you understand. Uh, I just want to say, first of all, that I completely agree with you. I'm, I'm, extremely lucky to have Sarah Dath as my translator and, and she's an extremely dedicated and competent translator and she's really made a huge 
put in a huge lot of work to, 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 to make this translation work, and, and it really does. That's why I've got the impression that, that it does. But of course, it's, it's difficult to see your own, your own thought and mind translated into a different language. It's, it's also fascinating and intriguing. And uh, you can see other shades and other things coming forward that were not as obvious to you in the first place when you wrote the book. Some less flattering, <laughs> some more flattering. But, it, but it's interesting, and, uh, and I think, but, but most of all, it depends on, on the translator. I mean, if you have a really good translator, as I had in, in this case, I think so, if I can be the judge of it at all. Uh, it, it can be, it, it can also make the book even more powerful, I think, in many ways. The book is translated into something like two dozen languages, and I wondered, in conclusion perhaps, if you understand what is spoken to people, have some, have some aspects of the reception book surprised you, or is it really achieving what you, what you set out to in, in, in the way that you expected it to? Well, the success of the book, if you can call it, use that word, is it really surprised me. I was not aware at all that it would have this um, impact. Then again, it was a huge success, of course, in Sweden, but that of I mean, I, I've been writing a long time, and I'm quite well known as we know it. I would assume so, so it could be a local phenomenon <laughs> that way. But it was really um, heartened me, and, and, and um, is that is the fact that it has been so well received in also in countries where I'm, I'm not, I'm completely unknown entity, like for example here in Britain. It was also very well received in Holland when came out just recently and it's been through several print runs and, 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 uh, and so on. Extremely uh, good reviews and, and, and that makes me humble and, and, and grateful that it's, it, it's, it's, it's considered to be a good read also when it um, appears in, 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 in countries or in languages where, which are completely different from, from, from the Swedish. Uh, and, and that makes me glad and humble at the same time. And I really hope that it can uh, reach our British audience too. And German edition in, in print yet? It will come out soon. It's, everything is being prepared and uh, there's a lot of noise from that direction. We will we'll, we'll see. It's, every country has a diff different uh, reception. It will also be coming out in Poland, for example, which is extremely. I, I think different from 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 how it will be received here in here in Britain, and, and also there, there's a Hebrew translation slowly coming along, and that will also be interesting to see how it will be read in Israel. So there are many different kind of audiences. You, you can't please them all, of course, but, but I think that so far it's been been, been okay. Thank you. I was talking to Steve Sam Sandberg about The Emperor of Lies. It's available now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.